Hey, everyone, and welcome to day two of Food Addiction Recovery Week on Chef AJ Live, where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guest today is one of my very favorite plant-based doctors. I always get a big smile on my face when I get to talk to him and hear him speak, and he's going to be talking about something really important pertaining to food addiction. You might have heard some of the other experts say this. Dr. Joel Furman even wrote a whole book about this topic, Fast Food Genocide. But food addiction actually begins in childhood. And to talk about it today is Dr. Eric Walsh. I'm so happy to see you. So glad to be with you. And uh, uh, it's good to see you. You're just glowing. So whatever you're doing is working out there in California. <laughs> you know, thank you so, so much. You know, I it's funny. I, I don't know why. I make, I'm a chef, so I make analogies. But millet is a whole grain. And I think it's delicious, but I think it's an underused grain. You know, people, I love rice, but people always go to rice and quinoa. quinoa and I'm like, what about millet? I think you're an underutilized plant-based doctor. In other words, I think you're one of the most dynamic, engaging speakers, but I need to get you out there more because you're just wonderful. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. We have an amazing topic today. Um, that um, I, I presented for a large teacher's conference, some of this information. So this isn't just about food addiction. It's about how it affects children's learning um, and performance in school. So um, it's a little more a little more complicated than, than I think we first talked about, but we definitely will delve into the fact that food addiction starts earlier than most of us would imagine. Thank you. A lot of people don't even still believe it's real. Yeah, I, I hear that all the time and I don't know how to get that, come to that conclusion, but <laughs> we can discuss that after. All right. You want me to just start sharing and go into the slides? I would love it. And then afterwards, hopefully we can ask some questions. Wonderful. All right. We're going to go quickly through the slides. Um, and just let me know that it looks okay like it did when we tested it. Looks perfect. Awesome. Okay. Um, so this one is food addiction starts in childhood. And I want to just jump right into um, kind of some statistics, epidemiology on this. And the first thing I would say is that, you know, you as kids are less likely to have a healthy lifestyle. And I think most of us know this. Um, there is so much in, in a land of excess with video games, televisions, cell phones, um, very um, convenient, fast and food and junk food um, that, that would, you know, really tempt you as a child. Um, and so let me give you a little bit of a background. Um, the physical activity grades are bad for U.S. children and youth. Um, U.S. children and youth actually get a D minus, even though they say that that is improving. Uh, so our kids are not active in comparison to other wealthy countries. Um, the percentage of adolescents meeting federal fruit and vegetable intake recommendations, and this is from the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System. This is from 2017. The CDC puts this out. It's a little bit old, but I think it's still just as relevant. And they found that the proportion of U.S. high school students meeting federal intake recommendations are uh, in 2017 remain low. Only 7.1% consume enough fruits and 2% consume enough vegetables to meet USDA recommendations. This is startling because USDA recommendations, I think you, Chef AJ, and myself would both agree, is way too low as it is. So uh, it's pretty shocking uh, that our kids don't even make that, um, meet that uh, criteria. Our kids don't get enough sleep, which obviously affects appetite. Um, only about 60% of grades six to eight-year-olds do when they looked at nine states. And in a national sample, only about 70% of, seven, uh, of ninth through 12th graders. This is relevant because we talk about food addiction. You cannot talk about food addiction without talking about two other things. That's stress and sleep. If you don't sleep, sleep is when you actually reset the appetite to be able to control it better the next day, um, deal with the stresses of the day. Sleep is even when we deal with trauma. It is when we deal with trauma. Emotional trauma is managed. The brain heals from it when we sleep. So in a society that is caffeinated and overstimulated, there's not enough sleep and that causes problems. And as you can see here, um, the, with more stress, it messes with concentration and awareness. Um, when, you have, when you don't get enough sleep, it, it increases the stress. But both of these all together mess with academic performance because when you don't sleep, it messes with memory consolidation. So remember, part of this is to really encourage parents, especially grandparents, especially to encourage healthy lifestyles in kids. Sleep is a big part of that because when, the higher our stress, 
the poorer our health and the more difficult it is to learn. The higher our stress, the poorer our health, the more difficult it is for us to learn. So um, I won't get too deep into the trauma piece, except to say that trauma is a big stressor for kids. Um, toxic stress actually changes, um, has the potential to change your child's brain chemistry, brain anatomy, and even gene expression called epigenetics. Uh, it weakens the architecture of the developing brain, which can lead to lifelong problems in learning behavior and physical and mental health. When a child experiences toxic stress, the hypothalamic pituitary and adrenal hormone access is overactivated. Um, this means that there's too much cortisol in the blood, which leads to inflammation and immunity problems. Um, the COVID pandemic would never have gotten where it got in the United States without the high stress levels of people in the States. The, the chronic diseases aren't simply nutritional, they are compounded synergistically by the level of stress that people in America are dealing with. Um, and so this actually leads to anxiety and depression. And here's what happens, you know, these toxic stress responses can also lead, like I said earlier, to, to epigenetic changes. But what happens when all of this happens is um, you become stressed and it actually uh, changes the way you view food one of the things that when you are chronically stressed and it leads to anxiety and depression is you, you then want to um, uh, automatically almost, you look to self-medicate. You look to self-medicate. Our mental health system can't manage the number of people as part of my practice. I do some mental health work. The system can't handle everyone. And so people wind up self-medicating. And this is why we see opiate overdoses like we've seen them over the past decade, why we see um, you know gravitation towards alcohol and other drugs, but food, it can function like a drug, as we're going to talk about, and it can affect us even when we're young. And you've, I've shown this on your show before, stress spelled backwards is desserts. Uh, Dr. Batista and I show this all the time. A nutritionist came up with this. It's not ours, but it is a true statement. When you're stressed out, you eat differently. You look for food differently. And all of that really does matter. Um, so how early, now let's talk about food addiction starts in childhood. How early do children begin to stress eat? Uh, stress eating can hit kids as young as four, this Futurity um, article uh, states. Look at some of the information they give. They say, we know from previous studies that people who have extremely adverse life experiences and stress in childhood have a tendency toward overweight and obesity. Um, this is Allison Miller from the University of Michigan School of Public Health. She says, Kids who had higher levels of stress were observed to eat more in the absence of hunger and emotionally overeat more as reported by their parents. So we've got to focus on this. And let me say, for those of you um, who've struggled with weight your whole life, like I have, understand that childhood trauma, childhood stress, stress eating, and then what they gave us to eat has really um, been like a, a cacophony of, of influencing factors that make this so addicting. So when people say food is not addicting, it's because they're, 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 they may be parsing. Food can create habits. And remember that anything that changes your mood, I learned this when I studied addiction medicine at the Loma Linda um, Veterans Hospital and residency, anything that can change your mood can be habit forming. Food can change your mood. We'll talk more about that in a second. The effects of children eating unhealthy school lunches. So let's jump deep into the deeper end of the pool here. Um, our kids, you know, we talk about food addiction, but what are we really doing for them from a governmental kind of policy standpoint? Um, here's another article for Public School Review. It says how diet and nutrition impact a child's learning ability. So again, I, I, a little bit of this I want you to show. It's not just that our kids are food addicted, not just that they're eating bad food, but their performance, their learning, their ability to be spiritual beings, emotional beings is being hindered by lifestyle and particularly diet. Um, so here's what this article says. While the intake of food is vital for pr proper performance, many of the widely available and popular foods in schools today are actually hindering children's abilities to learn. Don't miss this, parents. The food in schools are loaded with sugars, caffeine, chemicals, and sodium. Many popular menu items are leaving kids tired, unfocused, jittery, and sick, which not only impacts students' grades and performances, look at this, but also influences their behavior and moods. We'll talk more about why that's true in a second as we talk more about why these foods are addicting. And this is an article, um, this is why, why fast food is healthier than school lunches. The shocking USDA truth. Okay, an article published in USA Today, this, this, they, they're commenting on it says, no parent would, feel would feed their child meat only fit for pet food or compo compost. 
Yet meat from old birds, old birds, like sickly birds, is exactly what children are being served at, at schools. A USA Today um, investigation showed, this is right from around 2010, some changes have been made since then. Even KFC and Campbell's, even KFC and Campbell's Soup Company refused to buy such meat because of quality considerations. And they've been doing that a long time. Yet children in schools are getting this. Uh, proper nutrition is also tied to better academic performance. So kids who eat unhealthy lunches in school are more likely to score lower on tests and have a harder time with schoolwork. There are long-term effects as well. According to a 2012 article written by registered dietitian, Timmy uh, Gustafson, not getting enough essential nutrients at meals may lower children's IQ scores, memory capacities, fine motor skills, social skills, and language skills into early adult and beyond. So if you're like me and you grew up poor, you probably got the free lunch program at school and the food we were given, especially if you grew up when I did back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, probably for those even from the early 70s and 60s before my time, you, you would find that these foods were literally stripping nutrients from children and hindering their ability to learn. Now, a child's poor dietary habits can even influence his sleep patterns, which may have an effect on cognitive behaviors and academic abilities. According to the results of a research of a research review published in 2004 in the British Journal of Nutrition, children who are micronutrient deficient may exhibit more aggressiveness, less mental endurance, and lower intelligence test scores. So our children, if fed bad food, the science says it can affect their academic performance, it affects their mood, can even make them more aggressive. Now, here's the thing. If it affects all of those things, it, there's now two pathways for these foods to not allow our children to make good decisions. And one of the places they might not make good decisions is around lifestyle and food itself. And then they're barraged. I think I showed this on your show last time, $2 billion a year for marketing um, the food and beverage industry you takes to market to children, $5 million a day of marketing unhealthy foods, $5 million a day. Uh, can't keep up. There are no broccoli commercials, no watermelon commercials, no, um, you know, cranberry commercials, you know, it, it, no comparison. And all of this is for foods um, high in salt, sugar, and fat, and almost all, all of it is low in fiber. Um, so if a kid watches TV and sees these commercials, they actually eat more food. The study show 45% more food if you're watching the commercial while you eat the food. Um, so if you think kids are eating mostly junk food, a new study says you're right. NPR had that great article. We're talking about food addiction starts in childhood. Kids in the United States are eating more fast food, the CDC report. So this is a problem. The kids in the United States are eating more and more fast food, which is addicting. And we'll show you why here in a second. So the, I talked on the show about this before. I, every talk, I pretty much bring this up. The tobacco industry was sued because they lied and said their product wasn't addicting and didn't cause disease. The food industry doesn't lie. They say up front, bet you can't eat just one. They say up front, once you pop, you can't stop. Uh, so they manufacture addiction. It's a New York Times article from 2011 that the foods are designed to create this, uh, these uh, addictive uh, things. So foods were given to children. So this, uh, this is about adults. This is not just about children, but clearly children are eating these foods. And so I have a picture of a Dorito here. And you can see um, that they actually have food engineers who designed the food to have the right amount of salt, the right amount of fat. You see the equation salt plus fat squared over a satisfying crunch times pleasant, pleasing mouthfeel equals a food designed to addict. The book that I recommend, Michael Moss's Salt Sugar Fat, his other book is Hooked, um, and they really go deep into this. So from the outside, I said, you know, um, Chef AJ, when we and I discussed this topic, I looked, I said, what, where do we start? So salt, sugar, and fat is the book. We start with sugar, right? They want to get sugar on your mind. And everyone's probably seen this. This is the increase in sugar consumption from 1822 to 2016. It has been pretty startling. It has tipped down recently, probably because of artificial sweeteners um, and more awareness about the dangers of food. But again, it goes back to advertising. This is a Coca-Cola advertising from the early 1900s. And you can see this um, very Victorian appearing lady. Um, and it says the ideal brain tonic. They say Coca-Cola is the ideal brain tonic. And look at what it says, specific for headaches, relieves mental and physical exhaustion. Well, Coca-Cola wasn't stupid. Initially, remember Coca-Cola actually had cocaine in it. And to this day, when they make Coca-Cola, the cocaine is still produced and they have to actually, under you know federal guidelines, they actually have to remove it. I heard that in France, once at one of the plants, someone actually stole some of the cocaine. So it was designed to be addicting from its inception. Never forget that. When they had to take out, when, when the cocaine came out, 
one of the things that was there, and I don't know if they added it or if it was there before or how it got there, is caffeine and sugar. Caffeine specifically as a chemical addictive agent. The number one cause of migraine headaches in the United States of America is caffeine withdrawal. So, of course, Coca-Cola with caffeine treats headaches and relieves mental and physical exhaustion because it causes it, right? It's an addiction cycle. They say it was a great temperance beverage. And this is how they began to get us hooked on sugar. So look at what they did to little kids. I'm talking about sugar, I mean, food addiction in childhood. Look at this. Little cute little baby, pleasure, pure pleasure. They give them 7-Up. Look at this. I mean, this is a sugar. Anybody drinks has ever had a 7-Up knows it is a sugar-laden beverage that they wanted you given to your toddler to show you that there is literally an intentionality to exposing children to something as addicting as sugar. And I can't believe that whoever gave them, who wanted kids to drink 7-Up didn't believe they would want to drink 7-Up the rest of their life, which is a sign that it would be habit-forming at the least, addictive at its worst. But it wasn't just that. They went after the ladies here. You know, ethnically diverse, two commercial, uh, two ad campaigns. Sugar keeps your energy up and your appetite down. Patently false. Sugar does exactly the opposite when you eat processed sugars. Sugar can be the willpower you need to undertreat. Uh, to undereat, and that again is not true. We'll show you in a second. So we're not talking about sugar in fruit, as we'll talk about later. We're talking about these processed sucrose, white sugar, brown sugar um, that we eat. Even the molasses and honey, although they have they're better in a sense because they do have some micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, etc. All of it is going to be very, very much um, uh, kind of addicting, and it starts um, in childhood before the child is even born. This is an article. Um, um, from one of the nutrition journals, effects of consuming sugars and alternative sweeteners during pregnancy on maternal and child health, the evidence for a secondhand sugar effect. What I want everyone to get is that even before you have your first Pop-Tart, your first ice cream, if your mother was one of those women drinking the, uh, eating a cookie or drinking the 7-Up, look at what it does. Obviously, it has major impacts on um, uh, maternal child health, um, immediate birth outcomes like preterm delivery, preeclampsia, and gestational diabetes causes excessive weight gain in the mother. Sugar and the alternative sweeteners does this. Now watch this. Increase the risk of childhood obesity. So if your mother ate a sugar-related diet or even an alternate um, sugar alternatives, your chances of having childhood obesity goes up. The last two bullets are really important. It changes your preference and your taste preferences is what I should say. It changes your taste preferences. So when that child is offered broccoli, spinach later on, Brussels sprout, they're not going to like it because they've got a sweet tooth at birth. It, you know, this is kind of, we used to talk about crack babies and babies are born addicted to cocaine. We've produced sugar crack babies in America for a long time. Child preference for sweet taste. And then look at the next one, child poor appetite control. We have literally set up our kids to have food addictions before our children were even born. That is profound. And I think I'm a victim of this in a sense, because I grew up with the standard American diet. And as did my mother, when she was pregnant with me, <clears throat> throw in stress. And you see why so many of us struggle so hard. Drugs of abuse target the brain's pleasure center. So here's what cocaine does. This is what food does, right? They both work on the same things. Cocaine just overloads. So it's a much more immediate high um, than food gives you. Food should give you pleasure. When you eat good food, you should get pleasure. But they've designed the food to, to actually increase more of the dopamine so it looks more like cocaine than food. And we know that this is kind of happening by this slide, which I think I may have shown on here before when I was with you, Chef AJ, that the, this is your normal brain, high dopamine so that you have normal pleasure and interest. When, you're, when you use cocaine, you have lack of pleasure, low dopamine, the red is gone. Sugar does the same thing gives you a difficulty feeling joy or pleasure. So you need more stimulants in your life. You're more likely to like harder drugs and so forth as you use drugs and burn up your dopaminergic pathway. And this then, if our children are being exposed to sugar, we are probably birthing children who have this problem, right? So then what does the, what does the food industry do? Well, sweet excess. This is from the Washington Post. How the baby food industry hooks toddlers on sugar, salt, and fat. Did you see that? The baby food industry does it. Here, look at this one from the conversation. Some infant formula milks contain more sugar than soda drinks. New research. And I read some of these articles. 
really profound in places, even Europe and in the United States, some of the baby formula is so sugar laden, so full of fat uh, that it actually um, starts the child off with a sweet tooth. So you, you might be born with one and then we, we give you the drug in bottle as soon as you're born. So what does sugar do to the developing brain? Sugar is not so nice for your child's brain development. A study suggests new research has shown uh, in a rodent model that daily consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages during adolescence impairs performance on a learning and memory task during adulthood. And you can see how they hide sugar. I won't get into that. You all know about corn syrup, fructose, high fructose corn syrup, um, maltose, dextrose. There's a whole bunch of names they have for sugar to hide it in foods. So what does it do to your child? Too much sugar can impede memory skills. Overconsumption of sugar has been proven in multiple studies to decrease memory span by literally slowing down brain synaptic activity. It causes cravings. I'll talk more about that in a, in a second. It, it stimulates the brain's pleasure pathways. That's the dopamine I showed you before. Um, and it gives you these cycles of cravings. It can cause anxiety by depleting the serotonin stores. Remember, serotonin is the if dopamine is the neurochemical that gives you pleasure and euphoria, serotonin is the neurochemical in the brain that actually makes you feel satisfied. So when you constantly take sugar in, it depletes the brain of serotonin. Um, so you have no reserves and makes you feel more anxious and depressed. And as a physician, I can tell you one of the primary reasons people come to see me is anxiety and depression. So sugar has a long-term effect on learning. A comprehensive study at UCLA showed that a diet high in high fructose corn syrup literally slowed down the brains of rats. Um, and so long-term, it will mess with your kid's ability to learn. And let's say this, we wanna be lifelong learners. It messes with all of our abilities to learn. And I won't get too deep into this, but this is, I believe, is part of the, the plethora of issues that are influencing the rise in global dementia. I believe sugar and food addiction is part of it. As you're gonna see, it goes even deeper than what I've shown you so far. So this is what I wanna show. This is the sugar roller coaster. You, you have a Snickers bar, the sugar spikes, insulin is poured into you and you get a crash. When you get this crash, the liver now thinks you're starving, spits out fats, and it goes up and down like this. And those fats that are spit out by the liver are problematic um, as they, those fats can clog the insulin receptors. I think I'll show a picture of it later on and actually increase your risk of diabetes. Not the direct raise in blood sugar, but the indirect effects, uh, effects of these crashes can actually lead to diabetes as well as some other things. Um, so teens who saturated fat intake, intake can affect learning and memory. So what was in the baby formula? It's high in fat and sugar. Isn't that interesting? And it makes you not think clearly, not remember well. Cheese, pizza, ice cream, hot dogs, and hamburgers, some of the most the foods most teenagers love to eat might be changing their brains and affecting learning and memory. Isn't that incredible? Um, and they did some studies on mice to see that. But here's one from the National Library of Medicine. This article is from um, one of the neuroscience journals. Habitual fat intake predicts memory function in younger women. So when you eat lots of fat, it messes with memory. It directly stimulates uh, appetite. Why fat lubricates appetite? Uh, part of that is because it takes away, it dulls the brain's response to leptin. Um, and leptin is also important for learning and memory and brain development. So it, you, you, when you eat these high fat diets, it messes up not just your ability to learn. The inability to learn is probably tied to the inability to control appetite. You would remember, I'm talking about saturated fat, this is Ronald Reagan holding a block of government cheese, which is just saturated fat, cholesterol, and salt. Yep, that's all. Here's the cheese trap. How breaking a surprising addiction of you lose weight. We all know Neil Bernard, a great, great physician. Um, in this article, they say he, he calls cheese dairy crack. Uh, I won't get too heavy into the cheese, but I will say um, that, the, that when you add these saturated fats, they actually allow the toxins from meat to get in. Those toxins go to the brain and inflame the brain. And remember that the fat itself actually messes with your ability to control your appetite. So we've got a few pathways so far that would lead to food addiction. One of them is lack of sleep, or, or I should say lack of, of difficulty to control your appetite, which will set you up for food addiction, lack of sleep, high sugar diet, high fat diet, high stress lifestyle. So you look at those things and that's partly what's happening. So high fat refined sugar diet reduces hippocampal brain development, neurotropic factor, which is what builds the brain gives you the ability to make tough decisions and stick to it. And some of us, our brains really are lacking some of this in a sense, 
because of how we, we, you know, we grew up on a standard American diet and didn't sleep enough and so forth. But there's good news. A lot of that can be can be remedied. I did want to throw it in because we talk about salt, sugar, and fat. And so too much salt may negatively impact children's education. We know, uh, I've done on presentations before, where salt actually can increase appetite as well. So all three, salt, sugar, and fat, increase appetite leading to, so it's not, it's not as simple as are we addicted to food? It's that do we have an appetite we can't control? So on one hand, they're creating food that is addicting. On the other hand, the food is changing our brain so that we can't control our appetites. Then you see why we have such a major obesity problem and why anyone who's really tried to lose weight has such a tough time because we have been programmed and fed uh, in order to put us into that situation. Um, and high salt diet messes with the blood, blood flow to the brain. We'll get there. I will jump to, to some of the things that we can do to reverse all of this for ourselves, for our children, since this does start in childhood. One of them is eat lentils, right? Um, lentils are really good. Um, they actually help make coenzyme A, which is critical ingredient for brain function. Um, so an important hormone synthesis and energy production and general brain function. Um, lentils are just amazing, they improve cognitive function, good source of vitamin of B vitamins. It lowers homocysteine, an amino acid linked to dementia. In the Bible, for those who you know, grew up Jewish or Christian, um, the story of Daniel chapter one, he asked for pulse to eat instead of eating the meat and the wine that the king of Babylon told him to eat. When you look at the word pulse, it actually translates to lentils. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful food for the brain. So kidney and pinto beans also high in omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids we're learning are very important to, to appetite control. Black beans contain magnesium, so they help with cognitive function and memory. Um, and the fiber in the beans slows digestion, um, which allows for a slow release of, of glucose, which is what the brain really wants, not the spikes we saw earlier. So there's some foods that actually make, help you make uh, nitric oxide. Watermelon actually helps make nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a chemical that dilates vessels in the body. Watermelon, and for men who, especially with um, um, ED, um, erectile dysfunction, the yellow watermelons actually really do a good job of opening up blood vessels and can help uh, in management of ED. Um, I have a picture of beets there. I'm not a huge beets fan, but I'm learning to eat them more and more because they are so good for nitric oxide. The non-heme in the beets is better than the heme in meat. And that is because it is the body can regulate how much of the non-heme it takes in. And the non-heme does not go and oxidize the brain the way that the heme does for meat. Remember, heme in the meat is iron and iron rusts. The non-heme doesn't do that in the brain and is actually vital for good brain function. Also garlic, I put a, a picture of a plate of garlic up at the top. Garlic also opens up and helps with brain blood flow. So you definitely wanna be eating these foods. Um, obviously high, again, omega-3 um, omega fatty acids, the chia seeds, flax seeds, all very important. What else does this? Well, blueberries, they enhance brain blood flow. Um, so you can reverse some of this with good food is my point. Some of what they've done to us. Blueberry supplementation improves memory in older adults. They did a study with kids where they gave one group of kids no blueberries, one group one cup, one group, one group two cups of blueberries. And as you go through the three stages, what you find happening is the kids who ate the most blueberries, the two cups, did better in school that particular day than the group that ate one cup. Blueberries are super powering foods. Nuts and seeds, I don't have time to get to all of them. Walnuts look like the brains. People always say they, they must be good for your brain. And they're right. It actually, it benefits effects of, uh, beneficial effects of walnuts on cognition and brain health. It is very good for brain health as are other um, nuts. So really having a handful of mixed notes, as Dr. Sabati over at Loma Linda would say, is really good for the brain. Seeds as well, they're pumpkin seeds, packed with vitamins and minerals that are good for the brain. But again, chia seed, flax seed, also very good. Um, pumpkin seeds have zinc, magnesium, copper, iron, really help the brain out um, in the best form. The only spice I'm gonna talk about really here now, there's a lot I could talk about spices, but I will mention turmeric, which has curcumin in it. It gives its color. It is anti-inflammatory. And there are studies done out of India that it can actually improve memory in Alzheimer's patients. So it improves brain function in your child. And, and I believe part of the way we gain, regain victory in our appetite is by feeding it the best, feeding our brains the best possible nutrients. So we have the sharpest brain to make the best decisions. Tofu and soy, uh, of course, you all know tofu has um, antioxidants called polyphenols. 
and they help support parts of the brain involved in memory creation. So they're good for kids. I tell parents, they ask me, what do my kids eat for breakfast? Um, um, I tell them, you know, they should have um, oats, um, um, whole oats, um, I'm blanking on the type I eat, um, but oats with blueberries, bananas, sprinkle some um, 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 chia seed, flax seed that have been ground up on top of it, nuts on top of it. And um, if you get your kids to eat that, it's a great breakfast. But so is if you, if you get air fried some tofu, you can season it up overnight in the non-oil foods, uh, a non-oil preparation, uh, no oil. You don't want oil. Oil is, is going to give you fat and fat to your brain. But you get no tofu, you can make breakfast greens. And with the, with the tofu, whole grain breads like Ezekiel 4.9, all of that will help. And the whole grains are very good for your brain. I won't get into that too much on this talk. But you definitely don't want your kids eating anything but whole grain foods because this, the, the fiber, the nutrients. And what we're finding is it's not just fiber that protects against the sugar spikes that we showed you earlier. Those sugar spikes are the worst thing for appetite control, worst thing for your, your body metabolism. But when you eat whole grains, and, and um, it's, it, there's also those other nutrients that help protect you from those, those quick sugar drops. When they give people even um, uh, like grape juice, just the, the, the um, phytonutrients that are in the juice also, even though the juice is just pure sugar, it still protects against the sugar drops. So it's not just the fiber, it's the, all the nutrients in these foods that help maintain stable blood sugar. Kids who eat their greens regularly boost their brain power, study finds. And then I talk a bit about exercise. I, think, I don't think you can really control your appetite without good exercise. Regular exercise changes the brain to improve memory and thinking skills. Um, and so I won't get into the exercise stuff too much, but exercise is really important to reduce stress stimulate brain growth. It actually releases the brain growth factors we talked about earlier. Um, and I'll finish with this slide. Last slide here is school performance. PS244Q in New York adopted a full vegetarian policy. And as a result, BMIs, the weight of the kids went down. The kids got sick less. The school standardized test scores even ranked 11th in the state. The other 10 schools with higher test scores have no English language learners, and they all had gifted programs, neither of which applied to PS244Q. So PS244Q in Queens, New York, with um, kids that didn't speak English, uh, with no gifted program, raised to the top of the elite schools in the state. One of the secrets to that was a vegetarian food policy in the school. So you know, when you talk about your kids, you talk about food addiction, it really is important to, um, to look at all of this stuff because our kids, you know, we want to give our kids an advantage. So, so yeah, food addiction starts early, but it is literally, you know, beating up our kids' brains, making it harder for them to make good decisions and really messing up their long-term life um, um, trajectory. Wow. This was, why can't you give this in Congress or at the White House or somewhere where people are really going to listen to you? Because one of the viewers is saying, what you're fighting a billion dollar industry. And you absolutely are. And, and so, you know, I remember reading um, one of the um, uh, a biography on Martin Luther King and what people used to tell him, we were just talking about the, the, uh, his holiday a little before we got on, um, what people used to tell him was that you don't go so fast. You know, you're not going to change America like that. Segregation is not going to fall. But somebody's got to go out there and, and, and cry aloud um, and spare not. Somebody's got to say that this is wrong. Um, ask yourself who makes the money on that billion dollar industry. You know, during the pandemic, people were really angry with food, the pharmaceutical industry around vaccines and other things. And you know, my answer always is there's no pharmaceutical industry. If there isn't a food industry, you can't get mad at them. <laughs> I mean, you can get mad at them, but you can't get as mad at them as the people who actually cause the disease. They don't cause the diseases. And they don't, the they won't take responsibility. Even the tobacco industry, I think they know they did now, right? I mean, yeah, they, they may not to. like it, but they I think they, yeah. 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 And you know, it's yeah. interesting, Dr. Walsh, that a lot of the tobacco industry bought food industry. because Nabisco, they, they, you know what it is? Because they were, they understand. I've heard that they're actually, um, um, I've heard that they are also um, buying up, um, even some of the marijuana stuff now too. I've heard tobacco industry is getting involved with that. So they're they're masters at, at at finding products that will sell that people can get develop habits to, and they they realize food quickly was one of them. Um, and so they right they jumped out of tobacco and straight into um, food. 
uh, and, and it worked for them. You know, it worked well for them because the, the advertising campaigns they use for tobacco, they can use for food. Absolutely. I, I took a bunch of notes and I and also there's some questions in the live chat, but I thought it was really interesting when you talked about turmeric improving brain function, because before we went live, we talked about your mutual friend who's now my medical doctor, Dr. Neil Nedley, and he actually put me on a supplement of curcumin and turmeric. I thought that was kind of, I didn't, I don't know why he put me on it. He just told me to take it and I did. And now I know. Well, it's very good for you. And, you know, and so when you look at countries like India and even my parents are Jamaican in the, in the West Indies, they in, in Trinidad and Jamaica, they eat a lot of curry. It's a different kind of a little bit different in India, but it still has the curcumin in it. And it really does help with inflammation and it's an anti-aging thing. So, you know, I think, you know, if you're not eating it like two, three times a week, like in some of those cultures, probably is smart to take a supplement of it. You know, what you said about how baby, they, they addict you from cradle to grave, you know, because you talked about baby formulas having, you know, oil and sugar and salt. And then when you get old and you're in the hospital or in the nursing home, they give you insured. Sure you, you nailed it. Um, I, I tell you what was most frightening for me was the fact that um, in utero, um, you literally can change a child's taste preferences for when they're born. Um, so if the mother eats the standard American diet, the child is going to be born craving the standard American diet in a sense. The formula then fits that. It's just a continuation of the same thing. And so now when your child is four or five years old and you take them to McDonald's, it just fits. You know, the fast food world just fits. And so that's partly why so many parents say it's so hard to get them to eat vegetables and fruits and stuff. It's because our, their palates have basically been trained to be to, for the hyper, um, hyper addicting, you know, hyper sensitizing foods that are made by the junk food world and the fast food world. Yeah. You know, you, the title of your talk is Food Addiction Begins in Childhood. And you've been a regular part of the Truth About Weight Loss Summit for many years, giving expert interviews. And some of the experts even say it actually begins before that. It begins in utero. It yep. begins in the mother. It begins in the grandmother. So it it is almost like a genetic disease that's been passed it's, down. It's, when I talk, well, in, in the talk, when I talk about the, the gene expression changes, that is epigenetics. So you're right. I mean, you can change the gene in one generation and pass the new bad gene that didn't exist before to the next one. And so some of these cravings, some of these desires uh, are literally being passed from generation to generation. I thought that was really interesting when you said that you studied addiction medicine at Loma Linda. And I'm curious, is food addiction part of that curriculum at all? Is it mentioned? It wasn't when I was there. It may be now, honestly, but it wasn't when I was there because it was more about drug addiction nicotine through you know really hard drugs is what we what we what we treated but i can tell you that some of the strategies we use there actually work very well for food i think i wish every everyone who was really trying to beat their food addiction um, and change their lifestyle had the support of of the groups like the, like we had at the veterans hospital telling each other's story um, and i know you can get that with like um, overeaters anonymous but that a part of it having a sponsor someone you're accountable to um and then having all these mantras that they chanted um it works if you work it so work it till it works i mean they had all these great little chants that they would say to um encourage one another and so a lot of the methodology really is the same um dealing with a withdrawals and so forth would be very similar yeah you know i love how and i appreciate how you mentioned that alternative sweeteners are not any better i've had dr michael Gorin on the show who wrote sugar proof he's a childhood obesity expert at usc and he said they're just as bad. They're different bad, but they're bad. They absolutely are. It, it actually shows that people eat more when they eat those things. Um, and there are some toxic effects. Aspartame, to me, is not even fit for human consumption. So, um, you know, and the FDA agreed with me at one time, and then they changed their minds. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I, I, I definitely do. And, I, you know, people ask me what sugars to eat. Um, I, I, I say, you know, if you, a little honey is not the best, you know, um, molasses, it's still sugar. It just, they have more vitamins and minerals because they are in a more natural form, but it's still just sugar. Um, and so the only one that I really have settled, people ask me about stevia and other things. The one that I recommend really is date sugar because it's just ground up dates. I love you. Thank you. Because yeah. I said, well, what about date syrup? Because it is concentrated, but it, you could make it in your home. You basically boil dates, reduce them and blend them. It's a yep. little bit more concentrated than eating a whole date. Yeah, I like eating dates. Um, they're very sweet. And I've learned that if you want to make a dessert, you can actually use dates 
hold eight and you know i'm not a i'm not a chef like you are but that's but the you, subject of my next book because yeah. that's all i've been doing for you know 10 well actually 20 years is yeah. using the fruit the whole fruit and nothing but the whole fruit there you go <laughs> yeah so here's a very poignant question from a live viewer where uh, yeah oh, it's about their okay well, while I while I look for that question, I'll I'll say the one that I see right now from Rachel. Do you have kids? I'd love to hear about how you go about food with them. Yeah, my kids are grown now, but um, uh, 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 but I would say you know we were a whole food plant based house. Um, so my kids have slipped from that some now, but they did not get that at home, and so they still kind of lean back towards it. But I think part of it was cutting up fruit and making that their snacks. Um, I learned something from my mother and my aunt Joan as a, when I was a child and they you know, we, they would, you know, I had uncles that make us okra and we couldn't stand okra. And what they figured out was if you, do, if a child is given something to eat, they don't want to eat it. You don't have to force them to eat it. They can leave and go do something else. But whenever they are hungry again, they're coming back to the food they left. And that works. Eventually you get hungry enough where you'll eat the okra, you'll eat the tomato, you'll eat the, and so sometimes the problem is, I, and I see this in my patients, you know, their kid cries because they're hungry, but they don't want what the parent is trying to give them that's healthier. And so the parent acquiesces and gives them something much less healthy in, in, the, in the mindset that, well, at least they, they have to eat something. And you don't realize that literally you are, you are, you are um, substantiating and developing addictive behavior. Right. So what happens when I don't get what I want? And I'm addicted to something. I jump up and down and I scream. That's what crack and cocaine addicts do. I mean, they will go, they will break into houses and steal stuff to get what they want. So if your child put pitches a fit and you acquiesce, you've you're now um, a co-conspirator in their addiction. Um, and so, you know, my thing was you eat what we have, you're gonna eat healthy. And the kids, they 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 actually had no problem with it growing up. Um, so, you know, I, I stick to that plan and that is you put, obviously you make the food as palatable as possible, but kids will eat what you give them if they see you eating it and it's all they have to eat. Right. I mean, I, I, you, you, you blow my mind with everything you say, but I love that about co-conspirator. Cause I always say to parents, you know, you don't have to be their pusher. You're right. They're going to, they're going to be at birthday parties. You of cannot course. control them all the time, but you, who buys the food if they don't have jobs and money and cars, Who's bringing the crap into the house in the first place? So I think parents, yes, it's difficult, but they need to take some responsibility for what they're feeding their kids. And you mentioned like if they throw a fit, I, I can tell you so many times I've been at grocery stores, even healthy grocery stores like Whole Foods, where they still have the hyper palatables at the register where I have seen like kids like throw tantrums and, and parents, they're mortified, but then they just give them the cookie because they they just want to get out of the store. And and uh, you, what we don't realize when we do that though is if if we're training our children, to not control themselves around what they eat. How do we expect that they're gonna control themselves in other areas of life? I, I mean, really think about that for a second. I mean, if you if something as fundamental and basic as appetite and food, we, 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 we are willing to acquiesce and give the kid whatever they want. Don't be surprised later on in life when they expect to get everything they want in everything in life and not have to work for it. So, you know, we can literally be raising less effective children when we do that. That might be the greatest quote I've ever heard. If we don't control our children, the, the way our children eat, how can we, whatever you said, say it again, because I want to type it in the chat. If we don't control. If, he, as a, if, we, if we don't help, if we don't control um, the way our children eat, if they, don't, if they don't learn to control their appetites, how do we expect that they're going to learn to control themselves in other areas of life? That is so profound. And it's so true. I mean, I, you know, because I struggled with food addiction, I believe for 50 years, and I have probably, I mean, you know, I probably have a similar upbringing to you in many ways, at least in the foods that I was, I, I was given. And I, I mean, I agree with you 100%. And that beautifully said, beautifully said. Oh, so here's a very poignant question from a live viewer named Jackie. How as an adult who has been overweight her entire life, do I fight these addictions? To be frank, nothing makes me happier than sugar, fat, and salt. I wish I could afford to go a month to a month long boot camp. You know, let me tell you something. I feel her. I've experienced what she's experiencing. So I know what she's saying. Um, it's not easy to undo this. I mean, um, un the difference between cocaine and even cigarettes and food addiction is you don't have to have a cigarette every day. You don't have to have cocaine, but you do have to eat. 
That's part of the reason breaking this is, in my opinion, the hardest of all addictions. Because when I was talking to nicotine addicts, we tell them clear your house of all Marlboro paraphernalia, all the ashtrays, um, you know, have your carpets clean, take your drapes down to have them cleaned, clean all your bedding so that the smell of it, nothing, you know, to reduce the risk that you're going to be reminded of it. All your T-shirts that say Marlboro or Camels, you toss everything so that you have a smoke-free house that has no vestige that you ever smoked ever in your life. You can't do that with food. Yeah. You drive down the street, you're going to see the golden arches. You're going to see the billboards. You're going to see the, car, the commercials on television. And so you're going to constantly be bombarded with things that lead to that addiction. One thing we learn in addiction medicine is if a heroin addict drives past the corner where they used to get their smack, where they used to get their heroin, the brain begins to release dopamine at just seeing the corner. That's scary. So you start to get the dopamine release before you actually get the drug. Why? Because by releasing the dopamine, the dopamine gives you not, the reminder of the pleasure and it gives you the energy to go and get the thing you're addicted to. So every commercial, every billboard, every sign for someone who's truly food addicted, and let's say your addiction really is like, you know, simple one of the fast food hamburger chains in this country, you're going to see it, which means you're going to release that little bit of dopamine and you're going to be driven back to want to buy it. So you have got to, the way that we break, the secret to breaking habits is you've got to create new pathways in the brain that run deeper than the old habits. So habit and addiction are two different things. The habit part of it you fix by actually changing habit, structuring the way you eat, when you eat, and what you eat. Part of it is to design your day so that you take away the, the, the advantage food has in that you have to eat something. So you design your day so that you, because a lot of, you know, ideally people would eat two meals a day, a larger meal in the morning, smaller meal later in the, like 33, four o'clock. And that would be it. For those who can do that, that's a great plan. But when you're first coming out of addiction, it may be that you eat a, a breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you have nuts and fruits as snacks in between those meals to take away the, the, the need for anything else. You always have something you can eat. One of the secrets to beating this addiction is you've got to let the stuff clear out of your system. The sugar's got to come out, the salt's got to come out, the fat's got to come out. Um, and so how do you get rid of it? You know, we, people talk about detoxing all the time. They miss one of the best detoxing systems. So you can do a juice fast and try and detox. You can do a lot of that stuff. Nothing detoxic, detoxifies you like sweat. Sweat is a, a, a absolutely magical detoxification system because it takes all that extra salt and gets it out of your body without passing it through your kidneys, which means, and there was a study I read once, and I, I need to find it, where they showed that they did blood and urine tests to find, I think it was like lead or some trace mineral that's bad for you. They could not find it in the person's blood, in the study subject's blood, or in their urine. But guess where they found it? In their sweat. Which means the sweat was able to concentrate and eliminate this thing better than, better than even urinating it out. So, if you feel like you're addicted and you can't win, this is why exercise is so important. You can't outrun your calories, but you can sweat out the toxins, begin to get rid of the addictive substances. You can change your brain health, get yourself back into a place of, of, of a more Zen mindset where you're more at peace with yourself and, and go do forest bathing. All we were talking about the importance of light and how light actually impacts the brain. I think I was talking to Columbus about that this morning. So getting sunlight, and get forest bathing to improve your health, getting to a place where food isn't the thing. And that's the problem for most of us. You're at work, sitting at a desk all day, working from home. Every time you get bored, what do you do? You want to go and eat something. Replace that with a walk. Even if it's just up and down the stairs in your house, it will change the way you eat. I, I, everything you say, I just want to hug you because Exercise is the most underutilized tool, I think, in treating addiction in general and food addiction. It, you know, it, I, I don't know exactly if this is true, but it's almost like it rewires the brain. And I don't think does. I would have been successful these last 10 years if I didn't exercise vigorously every day the second I wake up. But I didn't know that about the sweat. But it's that is so profound because so many of these people that say they struggle, they do no meaningful exercise at all. And we're not exercising to lose weight. It's for the reasons you say it's really like yeah. it's like your anti addiction medicine, if you will. And let me tell you something. The problem is people, the gyms and the personal trainers tout that if you come to them, they're going to work you out till you lose weight. They're not. Um, not that you shouldn't go to them for the brain health and the detoxing and the, and the mental health that it's going to give you. 
Um, but you do it because it's good for you and it'll help you control your appetite down the road. But the other thing is food is the most overused antidepressant in America. Exercise is the most underused anti-anxiety agent in this country. Right? So we overuse food when we're depressed. We underuse exercise when we're anxious and depressed. It is really, really important to remember that when you feel stressed, get out there. I, you know, I lift weights in the morning and I can tell you it, it, it really does change me. You know, it, it like you, you, you can face the day so nicely when the mornings when I can get up and get in a full two hours of workout, it's a different day. I don't care what the day throws at me. Um, you know, and if I can get to play basketball, some even again, that your problems just fade away. Um, while you're doing something physical like that. So, you know, I, I, like I said, for that person, I feel, I also would say find a physician who is whole food plant-based um, that will support you in making the changes and, and keeping up with you uh, or a nutritionist or both to help you with the food addiction. You need help. You can't, it's not, it's not something you can beat by yourself. It, it takes um, support to do it. And that's why going to a place like the True North Health Center, the Weimar Institute, fasting escape, they can be enormously helpful for people. Yeah, if she could, I would say, there's, I don't know what part of the country she's in. Weimar in California is amazing. Uchi Pines in Alabama is amazing. Wildwood in Northwest Georgia is amazing. All of those places are phenomenal places to go. There's one in, in um, South Dakota that's also really good as well. Black Hills, I think it's called. Um, so, you know, find one of those places. Go do 11 days, 18 days. Pull away from the world um, and let them really do a deep dive to help you to get off of this stuff. And every now and then I run programs that are really, really quite affordable for 30 days. And maybe she'd want to do one of those oh, yeah. in the middle of it right now. So she can't join. And we have Dr. Goldhammer and Dr. Lyle. They teach the classes too. So it's very, very helpful. So uh, Bernadette wants to know, can you talk about sugar or sugar water, maybe give, being given to crying babies? I mean, when they, when you circumcise a Jewish baby, they give them wine. <laughs> have you ever, have they not heard of like anesthesia <laughs> that's interesting well the sugar water works because again the sugar is going to leave give that child a lot of pleasure and that remember the, the earlier you go into this the, the less developed the brain is so you know in infancy and in early life the brain is even less developed so that feeling of pleasure in many ways is even bigger probably than what we get as an adult from the same thing so it's able to do that. But the problem is now you're wiring the brain to think, okay, anytime something unpleasant happens to me, sweet taste in my mouth is the solution. So you're programming the child, like Pav Pavlov's dog, to want for the rest of their life anytime pain comes. And so I, I said it in the talk, anything that changes your mood can become addicting. And what happens when I dealt with drug addicts, I learned is that there's an arrested development. If you start doing drugs at 15, at 65, if, if it's, you're 65 and you come off the drugs, you still have the mind and the emotional intelligence of a 15-year-old. I believe sugar addiction works similarly. And it stunts our emotional growth because if I'm upset and I can go home and have a piece of you know, chocolate cherry cake with ice cream and feel better, have I really learned to deal with my emotions? I have not. That's so profound. Let's see, uh, but up, um, there's lots of questions. Can, can we get the government to subsidize healthy foods? <laughs> no. I, I think we, we, would need a, we would need a, um, a, a um, almost maybe we need a third party. I don't know, but we, we would need something drastic to happen for that to happen. Um, what what depresses me as an American who votes and loves my country, what depresses me honestly is that we have every presidential election, many of the Senate um, races, they talk a lot about health care insurance, healthcare, price of drugs. What you don't hear people talk about is actual health. Nobody goes up and says, listen, I wanna, I'm gonna stand on a policy of health. Now I have to say the mayor of New York, um, Eric Adams, I, I applaud him. I mean, he's doing things that you, you seem in, you know, inconceivable just five years ago um, in terms of you know, trying to get the schools to be more plant-based and, and other things. Uh, but you, we do need to get the government to do more of this. The government, our tax dollars shouldn't be funding uh, corn and soy, which is genetically modified and can be turned into corn oil, high fructose corn syrup, soy oils, you know, really unhealthy things from plants that should have been healthy. Our, it should be going towards funding people who grow watermelons and almonds and, 
and not just the big gigantic ones like in Central California, these huge farms, but small farms all across the country that are growing cucumbers and zucchinis literally should be able to be subsidized so they can sell these products for much lower prices so that it's much more likely that all of us buy them and switch this game around once and for all. One of the viewers is saying we need to get this information in medical schools to train doctors how to advise patients. You know, I know that doctors, especially in their residency, I I mean, I hear how hard that is. And like they're using the kind of foods that are not so helpful to them, energy drinks, because they're using long shifts. And so they're kind of medicating whether they're overweight or not or have food addiction or not. I, I mean, I hear from doctors when they go through their residencies, they basically are eating horribly. You eat horribly, you sleep horribly, you caffeinate up. Um, it is, you know, when I was in medical school, it was funny, you know, 20 years ago, they, they, some of the guys in the class, more than 20 years ago, they would say, you know, it's funny, we, we're going to medical school to help people be healthy, but the process of us getting there is one of the most unhealthy processes there is uh, of going through medical school and then residency. And it's true. Um, I would say this, though, um, you know, we, we, more physicians do need to learn more about this stuff. We've got to move more to the mode of prevention. I said it earlier, it's, you know, you can demonize the pharmaceutical industry if you want, but there is no pharmaceutical industry if everybody in this country was whole food, plant-based, exercised, and got out and got around like they're supposed to. Yeah. You know, it, it was interesting when you made the point, because so much of what you say is so similar to the other speakers that are booked this week, like Dr. Ellen Goldhammer, but how sugar, fat, and salt increase the appetite. And you mentioned Michael Moss's books, which I think are wonderful for people to understand that. Because Dr. Goldhammer, when he talks about it, he says, you know, sugar, fat, well, at least oil, sugar, oil, and salt, they're not foods, they're chemicals that we add to our foods that fool the brain satiety mechanisms. And it's interesting because I'm doing an, I have to do this elimination diet now. And so the, you know, the food is like, I can't have any spice. I can't have, I can't have anything. And it's like, when food isn't that tasty, it's like, it's not that interesting. And then you basically just eat to, to not be hungry, you know, I mean, you don't have a choice. And that's how it would have been if we hadn't invented all these hyperpalatable foods. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Hyperpalatable foods is probably, you know, Dr. Batista and I, Columbus and I say it all the time, food has been weaponized. You know, it's not just been made uh, commercialized, it's weaponized. Um, and by weaponizing the food in the way that they have, you can literally control populations of people. Everything I just told you about intelligence and learning and memory, if you, if a class of people based on race or income, gender, whatever it is, if they are um, fed this way, patently they seem, you know, based on the science we just went over, they would have a disadvantage in this society, right? So if you don't turn this thing away, you literally have, uh, you know, you can disadvantage certain families just because they don't make as much money as other families. Um, and that is a problem when you say, okay, we want to live in an equal society. Uh, so this is goes to the core of, of equality in our society. Yeah. And, and I agree. Like, okay. So, so one of the, one of the viewers are saying I was born per, poor. We only ate junk food. They did. We did not have money to buy healthy food. And I understand that. And I, I also wonder though, at least today, things like beans and rice are, are I mean, are they ever going to be as cheap as junk food, but but they are not as expensive as- They're not that expensive. And they're actually very healthy. Um, So you're right. I mean, the truth of the matter is that I I, I can't remember um, which website it is, but they actually have a website that it shows you how you can actually live a whole food plant-based lifestyle for less money than you realize. So it's actually cheaper than going out and spending. If you have four kids and you go, or four of you in your household, and you go and buy Burger King or McDonald's, you're going to pay 30, 40 bucks for it. It's not, you know, depending on what you get. I mean, you at least pay 25 bucks for it. And they're saying, listen, for $25, you actually could have bought enough food to probably feed your family three or four times um, if you know how to shop. Right. And then it also, you know, I always feel pay the grocer, pay the doctor. You know, right now it seems cheap financially. But then when you're on $400 worth of diabetes medicine, that your insurance maybe won't pay for it, then it becomes more costly as you go along. And at the end of the day, your wealth, your health is your greatest wealth. It's your only wealth. I, I, would, I, I mean, I would much rather, you know, be have less money in my pocket today and, and the next 50 years, but feel great and live well for that 50 years because I'm going to get my money back to your point, but I'm not buying drugs and paying for surgeries. Yeah. Your health is your greatest wealth. So Marianne says, what about autistic children who have different taste buds? And I hear that a lot from parents say, I have to feed my kids crappy food because they're autistic. But if if sugar was not an option, then wouldn't people with autistic children have had to have come up with another option? Do you understand what I'm saying? 
I'm not saying it's not difficult, but is sugar the only option? Is junk food all, the only option for children that ha- are on the spectrum? The problem is, the, the truth of the matter is, there are natural foods that are just as good for autistic children as junk food would be for that child. And what I mean by that is, you probably haven't tried everything. And until you have, it's difficult to say what you're saying, because there are ways to create foods. To your point earlier, I mean, um, you know, I've seen people take dates um, and, 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 um, and nuts, grind them up into like a ball, roll them in like coconut shreds, and, you, and they're absolutely delicious. I have no idea how they do it. I'm not a chef. You are. <laughs> but it's whole food, all plant-based stuff. And so get a, if you get an air fryer and you find ways to cut up, you know, sweet potatoes and, and air fry them so that they're a little more crispy, there's things you can do to try and get the trick your child. And again, a hungry child will eat what you put in front of them after a while. Their, their, their survival drive is much stronger than we realize. Right. So you got to make the food taste as good as possible, but you do have to become creative and trying to find some things. Because if a child, if, if what I just showed about the brain is true and the science says it is, do you really want a child with autism getting the food that's going to be least um, supportive of developing the strongest brain in the future? And I don't think you do. I think you make the sacrifices early to get them what they need. Yeah, I thank you. For, I, do you think you'll write a book? You really are. I really consider you one of the leading experts in this topic and you're passionate about it and you really understand the science. I do. Uh, we have, uh, Columbus is working on a book now um, for him. I, 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 maybe I'll maybe I'll tag team with him on some part of it. But um, eventually I do. I want to talk about my own journey and I, and I want to explain a lot of this in that book. Oh, so um, that'd be fabulous. That, gonna, will, that, that will happen. I will help promote it to the end of the moon for you. Thank you. Um, so Heather says, I have a son with autism. He loves to eat what I eat, model, and they will follow. He always begs for my salad. And I'm not saying that that this is true for everyone, but a lot of the people that have come to me, they, they and complaining that their child on the spectrum won't eat healthy, they are not eating healthy themselves. And, they, and what, what, what she just said is actually critical. We have to model it too for our kids. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I love how you talked about, um, you know, the environment, because, you know, if somebody is an alcoholic, they, they probably shouldn't keep alcohol in their house. But and if you suffer with food addiction, you can't have those foods in your house, not a drop. Yeah, a crumb or a morsel. Stuff out of and house. yet they say, well, my kid won't eat this way. My husband, this is what I see is like the greatest challenge with, especially with the women that come to me is they just give up. It's like, well, my husband, you know, won't eat these foods outside the house. Well, then you need a marriage counselor. You do, because unfortunately, it'd be nice if you know. And it's I don't know. I don't know. It's sometimes seemingly impossible, but to get your husband or in the whole household on the same page around these issues is actually critical. Um, and it, it, and it, if you have the willpower, you can set up a separate place to store your food, and that might be the solution in some cases. But that's hard because the the bad stuff is still there. And it, it, and it's it calls like it's to you. It doesn't matter. Exactly. If it's, that's it the thing. It doesn't name. matter if it's in a lockbox or the other room. You, you know, us addicts, we'll find it. You it know? calls your name. It absolutely does. Just like crack cocaine. It, it will absolutely. call you back in the middle of the night when you're down and depressed and your job was terrible that day. That's when that food will call for you. I mean, I mean, to me, you know, little sugar addicts are not much different than crack addicts, except for to, they're just in, in, imbibing a different substance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, where's the question from? Uh, Melissa says, my son is having a hard time eating healthy food. How can I help him? I think you should be more specific what you mean about hard time, but there's so many wonderful plant-based doctors, including gastroenterologists who are plant-based to do virtual consults that can, can help with this. Even, you know, plant-based pediatricians, that would be my recommendation, but I, she didn't say how he's having a hard time. Is it emotionally? Is he gagging on the food? You know, that kind of thing. So I think we would need more information. Man, don't, I just, I just, I just wish you could come on more often because you just <laughs> brighten my day so much, and I, I can't. Where, where are you in the book? It, it, how, when do you think it will come out? I have no idea. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm talking to um, some people about um, editing and doing some stuff. So down the road, it will come out though. At some point, it will. Okay. Oh, here's a question from somebody that knows you. Yay. Antoinette says, Dr. Walsh, when will the Slave Food Project be back on YouTube with the live presentations on Friday? It will be the last Friday this month. We have Dr. Joel Furman on. So that is going to be a high point. He's one of my heroes. I've read every book he's written. I think just about all of his books. Um, So you do not want to miss that episode of Slave Food. 
Um, let me let me look on my calendar for the exact date. I can't wait. And Dr. Furman is is going to be the the end speaker for Food Addiction Week. He'll be on next yeah. Sunday. So yeah, it's, he... it's August twenty sixth. So it's going to be an interesting talk because he writes an excellent book um, on fast food genocide, and he talks a lot about food um, inequality and injustice. And so we're going to I think we're going to have a really good conversation with him because that's a great book on that subject. I love that. And if you tell me the exact date, I can link to it in the show notes to make sure people watch or at least okay. watch the replay of it. I'll tell, I'll tell Columbus to send it to you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's I our tech that. guy. Columbus. I, he's the only person I ever met with that name. And a whole first name. True. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. I just love talking to you so much, Dr. Walsh. And well, I same here. I, I tell everybody about you and how amazing you are and recommend your book to patients. Um, I tell them to go on and look at your story for encouragement. Um, and I have a lot of patients who come back and they say, wow, that was inspiring. So you, oh. you just know that you're inspiring people, even when you don't, don't realize oh it. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Oh my God. It was just so great talking to you. Thank you so you much, too. Dr. Walsh. Alrighty. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live on this very special week of food addiction recovery. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. when my 